with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, Welcome back. Um, We are in Matthew chapter 16, so if you'll open to that section of the gospel, we will go ahead and we will read through verses 13 and following up to, let's see, the end of the chapter today. So beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. We started a discussion of Matthew chapter 16 last week. We said that this is the high point of the gospel. Everything has sort of been building toward this point. And we asked the question, what is the essence of Christianity? We said that there are a great many misconceptions out there in the world as to what the faith really is all about, as to what it means to be a Christian. We said that there are three in particular, three misconceptions I think that are out there in the culture today, that Christianity at its core is merely a creed, that is a set of doctrines or a set of statements of belief, and that if you can stand up and say those things without crossing your finger, that's what it means to be a Christian. And it's really all about your intellectual uh, element, all about the head knowledge. And we said that there's no doubt about the fact that Christianity certainly does have a creed. 
Uh, we say the Creed every Sunday, whether it's morning prayer, whether it's the Holy Eucharist, we say the Nicene Creed in the case of communion. In the case of morning prayer, we say the Apostles' Creed. There are certain things that we have to believe as Christians in order to be followers of Christ. But it is perfectly possible to be orthodox in terms of your doctrine and still miss the heart of Christianity. That was certainly the case with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were orthodox. They believed all the right things. The problem was with how they lived their lives. So while Christianity certainly does have a creed, the creed is not the essence of the faith. Others might say, well, then, if Christianity is not merely a creed, it is a code of conduct. And we pointed out that Christianity certainly has a code of conduct. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So there's no doubt about the fact that Christianity does have a code of conduct. In fact, it has the highest code of all, the code of self-sacrificing love. But while it's possible to be moral in your conduct, upright in your behavior, you can still miss the essence of Christianity. There are a lot of moral atheists in the world today. We said a third misunderstanding that people sometimes have about the essence of Christianity is that it is merely a cult, and by cult I'm using it in the old sense, a collection of religious ceremonies. And we said that while Christianity certainly has religious ceremonies, and while it's important, the Bible says, do not neglect gathering or meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Going to church is certainly important. Attending worship, taking the sacraments, all of those things are important. Nevertheless, it's possible to have all of those things and still miss the heart of Christianity. It's very difficult, but nevertheless possible to have all those things. To be orthodox in your doctrine, to be upright in your conduct, and to be faithful in your church attendance and still miss the heart of Christianity. Why? Because Christianity at its heart is not about things. Christianity at its heart is about a person. It is about the person of Jesus Christ, and it's about having a personal relationship with Him. You see, if you take Christianity and you remove Jesus Christ from it, the whole thing falls apart. As somebody said, Christianity without Christ is like a casket without a jewel. It's like a frame without a picture. It's like a body without breath. So at the heart of Christianity is not just the belief of doctrines or right behavior, it is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And it's about knowing Him personally. Not merely knowing about Him. I made the distinction. I said you can know a great deal about a person without ever having known them. So Christianity is about this person and it is about knowing Him. Now what does it take to know Jesus Christ? If that's what the essence of Christianity is, what does it take to know him personally. Well, two things in particular. First of all, you have to know who he is. And second of all, you need to understand what he came to do. And that's why Matthew chapter 16 is the high point of the gospel, at least to this point. It's because both of those things are revealed to us here, in particular in the section that we just looked at. In this section in which Peter makes this great confession of Jesus Christ. So that's what I want us to take a look at today. This great confession that Peter makes of Jesus Christ. Everything, as I said, has been building toward this great climax. Now it's helpful, because Christianity is an historical faith, to understand the context. And the context is a very interesting one. Uh, Jesus once again withdraws from the people. 
Uh, In particular, he is withdrawing from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who we've said have been conniving, they have been plotting against Jesus to disrupt his ministry, to somehow discredit him in the eyes of the people. And as a result of that, Jesus decides to withdraw. He's also withdrawing because he's run afoul of Herod Antipas, King Herod who rules over this section of Galilee. The rumors are spreading that Jesus is a king, and of course Herod didn't want to hear that sort of thing. And so Jesus felt it was necessary to withdraw once again. He had already withdrawn to the area of Tyre and Sidon, but he had returned, and then he'd encountered the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and that whole issue. And so what we find here is that Jesus once again withdraws, at least temporarily, from the people in order to teach the disciples. Jesus at this point is now pouring himself, not exclusively, but primarily into the lives of his disciples. He's teaching them because he knows that his time on earth, his ministry is coming to a close. And he's going to be passing the baton on to them. They're going to carry on his reconciling work in the world. And there is much that they do not understand, much that they need to learn. And so Jesus withdraws from the crowds, withdraws from the religious leaders in order to teach the disciples specifically. Now, where does he withdraw to? Well, Matthew tells us he withdraws to the region of Caesarea Philippi. It was an odd place for Jesus to go. Tyre and Sidon had been an odd place for Jesus to go. This, too, is an odd place to go. Now, this is not Gentile territory. This is still Jewish territory, but it's the northernmost section of Jewish territory. The region of Caesarea Philippi, and some of you have been there, those of you who have been with me to the Holy Land, is about 25 miles north of Galilee. It's at the base of Mount Hermon, which was the largest mountain in all of Israel. It's located at the headwaters of the Jordan River. If you want to go and see the Jordan River, that's the place to go and see it. Uh, Not to the south where it is very muddy and dirty, but up to the north at the foothills of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a huge mountain, at least for that part of the world. Uh, Sometimes even in the spring it is covered with snow. I've been there in the spring. I've been there in May, and there is still snow on the top of Mount Hermon. So it was a very cool and lovely spot. But it was a place that, in the words of one commentator, had the very breath of ancient paganism in the air. Uh, People had been worshiping the pagan deities there in that region of Caesarea Philippi for a very long time. It had been the ancient site of Syrian Baal worship. You'll recall that the Baals were those who were worshipped by the Canaanites, And by others, you'll recall that Elijah had confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The Canaanites, of course, had been a people who had sacrificed their own children to their gods, to Moloch and to other, and the Syrians had worshipped the Baals as well. So this was an ancient site of Syrian Baal worship. In antiquity, it was known as Panias. Today, it is known as Banias. If you go there today, it's a national park in Israel, but In antiquity, it was known as Panias because it was not only associated with Syrian Baal worship, it was also associated with the worship of the god Pan, the Greek god Pan. Now, if you know who he was, he was a half-man, half-goat. He had the haunches of a goat and the horns of a goat, but the face of a man. He was a god of nature. He was a god of the shepherds, but he was also closely associated with sexuality and therefore was associated with the god of the springtime, god of fertility. So Pan was worshipped there. 
In fact, that area of Caesarea Philippi was believed to be the birthplace of this ancient god, Pan. So the Baals had been worshipped there in Caesarea Philippi. Pan had been worshipped there in Caesarea Philippi, and there was something else. The region had fallen into disrepair. It had lost its luster, but it had been rebuilt in grand style by Herod the Tetrarch. And when he rebuilt the area, he dedicated it to Caesar. He rebuilt it uh, as a monument to himself, Philip. He was Herod Philip, the Tetrarch, and he dedicated it to Caesar. That's why at the time that Jesus went there, it was known no longer as Panius, but as Caesarea Philippi, for Caesar and for himself. And because Philip was trying to ingratiate himself to the emperor, he had made it, in addition to all of these other things, a center for the cult of emperor worship. Huge monument had been dedicated there to this cult of emperor worship. Archaeologists have discovered no less than 14 different temples to the various gods and deities in this one area, this one small community of Caesarea Philippi. So you can see it really did have the breath of ancient paganism in its air. It was a place of great syncretism, a great mixture of all kinds of religions. Everybody and everything was worshipped there. It was, a, it was a little bit, you know, like Vegas. <laughs> it's the sort of place that no self-respecting Jew wanted to go. But if you did go... Whatever happened in Caesarea Philippi stayed in Caesarea Philippi. That, that was sort of the place that it was. In addition to all of these other things, it was also known to the ancients as the entrance to Hades. There is a huge cave located there in Caesarea Philippi, and if you go there today, and I'll show you an image of it in just a minute, there is a huge cave there, and the waters that form the Jordan River from the melting snow up above actually came out of that cave. Now, there had been an earthquake, and today the waters still come out, but they come out from underneath the cave. But in Jesus' day, the water actually came out of the cave, and this was known as the Gate of Hades. Hades was the god of the underworld, and it was oftentimes by means of water that the underworld gods would come up to the surface. So as you can see, this, this really was a, a sort of weird place. It was, a, it was a corrupt place. All kinds of pagan deities were being worshipped there in Caesarea Philippi. And that's why I said it is a very odd place for Jesus to take his disciples. Why, why would you want to take them to a place where Pan is worshipped and where the Baals are worshipped and where Caesar is worshipped and where Hades is acknowledged? It was a very strange place for Jesus to take them. Now, if you go there today, as I said, it is a very picturesque place. If you have images of Israel just being all dry and brown, sort of a desert, you've never actually been to Galilee, because it's nothing like that at all. That's what Banyas looks like today. It's a lovely spot. You get a picture of that cave, I'll give you a close-up of it, the gates to Hades, and you can see all of the shrines and the monuments that were carved out of the mountainside, almost like a miniature Petra. And those monuments and shrines are still there to this day. But as I said, there is this huge cave out of which the water would flow, known as the Gates of Hades. Here's how it looked probably at the time that Jesus went there. It was a beautiful place with these magnificent 
temples. But it was, in spite of its beauty, a very corrupt place. Now, again, why would Jesus bring his disciples to such a place? Well, he did it to ask them two questions. Two questions that would have greater meaning against that background of paganism, against that background of syncretism, this great mixing of religions and beliefs. And the first of those questions that Jesus asks against that backdrop is this, who do men say the Son of Man is? And Jesus asked the question, he said, I know people are talking about me, everybody knew that. That's the whole reason he had to withdraw in the first place. And so he's asked the disciples, what are people saying about me? What are the rumors that are flying about? And it's interesting to note the disciples are quick with answers. They knew what the crowds were saying. The first answer they give is some say that you are John the Baptist. We've already seen that King Herod thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist. That's why he was filled with fear because he had had John put to death and yet he sees Jesus doing all of these marvelous deeds healing the sick and multiplying the fish and the loaves and all of that. And he became very anxious that Jesus might be John the Baptist reincarnated back from the dead. Yes, his conscience was bothered. Well, that was the fear that Herod had, but it was the hope of some people. John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been highly regarded by the people. One of the reasons why Herod had not taken his life sooner was because he was so popular with the people Herod was afeard. So some said he was John the Baptist. Others said that he was Elijah. And the prophet Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the promises made that one like Elijah would come back at the time of the Messiah. He would be a forerunner, if you will. And so there were some believing that Jesus was Elijah, that he was the forerunner, that he was the one who was paving the way for the coming of the Messiah himself. And so there was a great deal of anticipation surrounding Jesus. Some said he was John the Baptist. Some said he was Elijah. Some said that he was Jeremiah. There was even some speculation that one day Jeremiah would come back. In one of the Old Testament apocryphal books, the Deuterocanonical books, 2 Maccabees, the story is told that at the time of the raid upon the temple, the prophet Jeremiah appeared and he took treasures out of the temple. And that when the Messiah came in the future, Jeremiah would reappear with those treasures from the temple. And so there was all kinds of speculation about Jesus. The people were saying all kinds of things. Everybody recognized, this is important, everybody recognized that Jesus was somebody of significance. But nobody could agree as to who he was. But there were all kinds of rumors flowing about What's really interesting to me, however, is that while people had all kinds of ideas as to who Jesus was, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, whoever, it's interesting to note that the disciples never said that anybody was claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Nobody expected that John the Baptist would be the Messiah, although there was some doubt that he might be, some speculation that he might be, but nobody expected that he was really going to be, especially in the wake of... Nobody knew, nobody expected that Elijah, rather, or Jeremiah was going to be the prophet. They were to be forerunners of the Messiah. Oddly enough, no one suggested, in spite of everything that Jesus was doing, that he was the Messiah. Why? Because they had very specific expectations as to what the Messiah was going to do when he came. 
And what they expected the Messiah to do was to drive out the Romans. When the Messiah came, the Old Testament said he would deliver his people from their oppression. And most Jews felt that they were being oppressed by the Romans. And so when the Messiah came, they expected him to drive out the Romans, either as a great political leader who would inspire the people to revolt, or as a great military leader who would lead them to victory. But whatever Jesus was doing, and he was doing some extraordinary things, one thing he was not doing was driving out the Romans. So there was no speculation that he was actually the Messiah. But it's interesting, when Jesus hears all of these answers, finally he turns to Peter and the others and he said, yes, yes, I I know that's what people are saying, but I've got another question for you. Who do you say that I am? And it's interesting to note that at that point, all of the disciples fell silent, except for Peter. It gets very uncomfortable when we get personal, don't we? It's all right to speculate about religious things when you're doing that from a distance. When this is some sort of academic exercise, it's safe to do that. But when you begin to talk about personal relationship with Jesus Christ, in fact, I remember some years ago when I was the rector at St. David's in Chiraw, I, I was there, uh, I was a young man, I was only about uh, 24 when I became the rector in that congregation, and I began to preach about Jesus. And it was interesting, I was there for about three months, and finally a man at the 8 o'clock service, and the 8 o'clock service was very small, we used to sit in the choir stalls, but after the 8 o'clock service, this man came up to me and he says, I want to ask you a question. I said, sure. He said, why are you always talking about Jesus? I thought to myself, well, the caller is part of the reason. He said, I just don't understand it. He said, in my day, we never talked about Jesus in the church. He said, we talked about God, but he said, only the Baptists talked about Jesus. Now, see, it was fine for him to keep God distant and aloof up there in heaven sort of keeping a watchful eye on the creation. But when you start talking about Jesus, well, that is very personal. That's down here on earth. That's flesh and blood, and that makes me a little uncomfortable, and he didn't like it. Now, as you can well imagine, I didn't stop talking about Jesus. And I'd like to say that that man got converted, but I don't think it ever actually happened. In fact, he just stopped coming to church altogether. But that's often the way it is, isn't it? When we begin to talk about Jesus, it becomes very personal. And yet, that's really what it is. As I said, the essence of Christianity is a person. It's not just a set of doctrines. It's not just a way of behaving. It's not just attending worship and going through the motions and getting your ticket punched. It is about knowing the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus, having heard all of this speculation, suddenly turns to the disciples and he said, okay, but what about you? Listen, that is the question we all have to wrestle with sooner or later. The question is not, what does the world think of Jesus Christ? The question is not, what does the church say Jesus Christ is all about? The question is, who do you say Jesus Christ is? And only you can answer that for yourself. And as I said, all of the disciples suddenly fell silent. Nobody wanted to speculate at this point. I'm sure they had their own ideas. But it was Peter alone who was willing to speak up, perhaps speaking on behalf of the rest. We really don't know, but it is Peter who stands up 
and makes the great confession. Verse 16, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. Now something gets lost in the translation here in the English. If you read this in the Greek, it's only about ten words. But the definite article is used four times in those ten words. What Peter actually said when Jesus said, but how about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter was not shy. He was very clear in his response, particularly in Greek. This is how it really should be translated literally into English. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. So you see in the Greek, it's very forceful. You are not just a Christ, a Messiah. You are the Christ. That is to say, the long-anticipated one. The one who has been promised. You are the Son. That's very important. We're going to talk about that in a minute. What are the implications of that? You are the Son of who? You are the Son of the God Remember that one of the things that distinguished the Israelites from every other people in the world at this time was the fact that they were monotheistic. Now, we live in an age in history when most of the major religions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, are monotheistic. But in the ancient world, that was not the case. Of course, Islam didn't even exist at this point. It was the latecomer to the scene. The only real monotheistic religion in the world in the first century was Judaism. Everybody else believed in many gods and deities. That was certainly the case with the Greeks. It was certainly the case with the Romans. And all of a sudden, Peter is saying, who are you? Who do we say that you are? We say that you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Peter's confession does two things that are very, very important. First of all, he identifies Jesus as the Messiah. Now, as I said, the Jews had long been waiting for a Messiah. And so Peter admits that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. In spite of the fact that people had specific expectations about what Jesus was coming to do, and that's the reason they weren't willing to accept him as the Messiah, Peter nevertheless does. Now, it's been a long time in coming, but finally Peter has arrived, and he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah, this is very important as well, was to be a descendant of King David. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back to the book of Jeremiah for just a moment. Jeremiah chapter 23. On the whole, Jeremiah is a rather gloomy book. But there are some very bright spots in it, and this is one of them. Chapter 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So it had been long prophesied in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, he would be descended from King David. Great David's greater son, as one of our hymns put it. 
So that's one of the things that Peter was confessing. He says, you are the one. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are David's heir. You are the one who is going to take David's rightful place and reign over his house forever. But he goes a step further. Everybody was expecting the Messiah was going to be David's son. But Peter takes it a step further. He said, you are the Christ. And the word Christ, incidentally, means anointed one. That's what the Messiah is, the anointed one. In the ancient world, you would anoint kings with oil. So you are the anointed one. You are the long-expected Messiah. But then he goes a step further. He says, you are not only the Messiah, you are the divine Messiah. Now, nobody really was expecting the Messiah to be divine. Most people, as I said, were expecting him to be a great political or military leader, but nobody was really expecting him to be divine. Now, we had a question and answer session a few weeks ago, and uh, at one of those sessions, I think it was Liz Battle, that raised a very important question. At which point did the Jews begin to accept the Messiah as divine? When, when did that come in? And I think the way I answered it was to say, well, it had always been there. It had been there in the Scriptures, but people really didn't, at least the disciples didn't begin to understand that Jesus was meant to be a divine Messiah until in the wake of the resurrection. The resurrection becomes that window through which they view the Old Testament and begin to understand it in an entirely new way. Up to that point, they couldn't. It was the Rosetta Stone that unlocked all the secrets of the Old Testament, the resurrection was. But what is interesting is that Peter at least gets some insight into it right here and right now, even before the resurrection. Now let me just give you a couple of examples of how I think that Jesus being the Messiah and the Messiah being divine is found in the Old Testament. Keep your finger there in Matthew and flip back to Psalm 110. Because this is a messianic Psalm, a psalm of David, Psalm 110, and this is what we read. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is a story about the coming Messiah. And you'll notice the word Lord is used twice. You will notice, however, that the first time that is used, as it's translated here in the ESV, the word Lord is all capitals. Because that is a reference to God. The second time, you'll notice that Lord is not capitalized or all caps. What is that a reference to? That is a reference to David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, keep ahead to Matthew chapter 22. We're not going to get there for some time, but if you get to Matthew chapter 22, Jesus goes ahead and he interprets this. He explains to us what this is really all about. Verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. I love this. The disciples must have been just gobsmacked when they heard Jesus do this because it was always the scribes and the Pharisees who were asking Jesus questions. But on this particular occasion, it was the reverse. Jesus turns the table on them and he asked them a question. He said, you've been asking me questions all along. Let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
And they said to him, the son of David. Now, of course, that was true. The prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that when the Messiah came, he would be from the line, the royal lineage of David. But Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, in other words, Jesus is saying David was divinely inspired when he wrote the Psalms, correct? And of course, the Pharisees would have said, absolutely. They believed the whole Old Testament, every jot and tittle of it. And Jesus said, well, then how is it that David, speaking through the Spirit, calls the one who is coming after him, Lord? For the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him who is to be his heir, his Lord, how is he his son? And the next verse is wonderful. And no one was able to answer him a word. <laughs> Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So there you have it. It was there. It had always been there, but nobody really understood it. The first person to gain insight into this, to recognize that the Messiah was not just a military or political leader, but was in fact divine the Son of God, and he says, the Son of the God, not just a Son, but the Son of the God. The first person to get that is Peter. That's a terrific insight. So he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who would come to save and redeem Israel, and he acknowledges that Jesus is divine, the Son of God, the God, the living one. Now that's significant because I want you to understand that is the bare minimum that must be believed if a person is going to be a Christian. That is the bare minimum. There are a lot of other things that go along with this thing we call the Christian life, but that is the bare minimum that must be believed. You have to believe in order to be a Christian that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the long-promised, long-anticipated Deliverer and Redeemer. And you have to understand that He is the Son of God. Those two things go together. It's who Jesus is, the Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And you need to understand what He came to earth to do, to save sinners. Now, there are a lot of things you can get wrong and still get to heaven in safety. But if you get this wrong, there's no hope. This is the message, and that is what Peter proclaimed. It was an extraordinary thing for him to say. There are many people out there in the world that want to say that Jesus is a great moral teacher, and there's no denying the fact that He is. And while that is true, I want you to understand it is not enough. It is true, but it is insufficient. It is inadequate. There are many people that want to say that Jesus is a great moral exemplar, a pattern for us to follow. That much is true as well. Teach us, teach us, holy child, by thy grace so meek and mild. That's what one of the carols of the season says. That's what we want to do. Jesus is a pattern for us to follow. But it is not enough to say that he is simply a great moral exemplar. There are other people that want to say, well, Jesus is a great prophet. Even... The Muslims acknowledge that Jesus is a great prophet. 
And he was. He was one who spoke the words of God to the people. But while that is true, it is not enough. Jesus is all of those things. He is a great teacher. He is a great moral exemplar. He is a prophet come from God. But that is not enough. All of that is true, but it is inadequate. You either believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, or you don't. C.S. Lewis described it in terms of what he called a trilemma. He says, when it comes to Jesus Christ, you are faced with one of three options, and only these three options. Either Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, and he went around claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to forgive sins, which only God could do, claiming to have the authority of God. I mean, think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said things like, you have heard that it was written... Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, that's Jesus setting himself up as a higher authority than what? What had been revealed to the Jews in the past. He said, I know what the law says, but I say to you, I mean, these are extraordinary claims. When that man who was lame was lowered through the roof because he wanted to be healed, Jesus looked at him and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees grumbled, saying, who does he think he is? How can he claim to forgive people of their sins? Only God can forgive people of their sins. And Jesus said, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'll heal this man. And he did. He said, rise and walk. It was very clear who Jesus was claiming to be. He said, before Abraham was, I am. That was the ancient word for God. That was the ancient name for God. The Jews wouldn't even speak that name. It was called the Tetragrammaton. It was too sacred to even be spoken. And yet Jesus said before Abraham was, you think Abraham's important? He said before Abraham was, I am. Those are extraordinary claims that Jesus was making. That's what he was saying. And you either believe that or you don't. Lewis said that's why we're left with one of three options. He's either who he claims to be or he's a liar. Or he's a lunatic. I mean, let's be honest. Somebody who is perfectly sane and claims to be God and knows they are not and leads thousands of people astray, that is not a moral person. You can't call that person a moral exemplar. Who would have called Jim Jones a moral exemplar? He led hundreds, thousands of people astray unto their death. We wouldn't call a person who did that a moral exemplar. But what if that person really believed that they were the Son of God, but they were a lunatic? Oh, we wouldn't say that they are morally flawed, but we would have said that's not the kind of person you want to follow, a a crazy person. If I walked into the room today and began to teach to you that I am the Son of God and that you need to follow me and that whatever I said has a higher priority than what's been revealed in the Old Testament, what would you say? You'd say, oh, we've been working him too hard. It's just, just, you know, uh, we knew it was going to happen sooner or later. He's gone round the bend. That's the end of that. Lewis said that's what you're faced with when it comes to Jesus Christ because his his claims were so extraordinary that either he is who he says he is or he's a, a liar or he's a lunatic. But that's what he forces you to. Here's how Lewis himself put it, far more eloquently than I ever could. 
He said, I am trying here to prevent someone saying the really foolish things that people often like to say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Well, that's what Peter was declaring openly and boldly. You are the Christ, the long-promised Messiah, and you are the Son of God. You are divine, and you have come here to deliver your people. Well, it was a marvelous confession. And Jesus praises Peter for it. Look at verses 17 and following. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that is Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does Jesus say in response to Peter's great confession? Well, it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, no, Peter, you shouldn't say that sort of thing. There's no false humility on the part of Jesus. He accepts it. He says, you are right, Peter. And furthermore, this is no flash of insight that you yourself have had. Nobody else has taught this to you. This great revelation is something that comes to you only from God himself. It's the Holy Spirit, you see, who spoke to Peter on this occasion. It was the Father through the Holy Spirit who led Peter into all truth. That's one of the reasons why I have great hope even for people who do not seem that they are ever going to come to faith. It's because we know that ultimately conversion is not the work of human beings. You can have the most eloquent preacher in the world and they can preach in season and out of season for years, for decades. And it doesn't mean that people are ever going to come to faith. And yet one person can hear the gospel and all of a sudden they've heard it for the first time. Now, they may have heard it preached before, but for the first time they've actually heard it. They've been listening, but for the first time they hear it and they hear it with spiritual ears. And all of a sudden their minds are opened and their hearts become receptive. And that soil which had not been fertile suddenly becomes fertile and they receive it and it begins to take root in the and it grows up and it produces fruit in keeping with righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work of conversion. It was the Holy Spirit who led Peter into this great truth. Jesus said, good for you, Peter. Good for you for listening to God, the Holy Spirit. This has been revealed to you from my Father who is in heaven. Then he says something else. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what Jesus says here has for centuries been debated and it's been controversial. 
In fact, it's been one of the most controversial things about this entire section, which is odd because it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That doesn't seem to be particularly controversial among commentators. But this part, what Jesus says to Peter, has been. What in the world did Jesus mean when he said, and you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Well, there have been a number of views throughout the centuries. One of the most dominant, and one that you're probably familiar with, is the Roman Catholic view. That when Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church, what he was saying is that Peter was the first pope. And that all the successors, the bishops of Rome who came after Peter, spoke with infallible authority. This is the doctrine of papal infallibility. That is the Roman Catholic view. That Peter was the rock and all of his heirs are the descendants of Peter and therefore the rock. And this is one of the reasons why the Roman Catholic Church says there is no salvation outside the church. And when they refer to the church, they're referring specifically to the Roman church. Well, that's the classic Roman Catholic view. The Protestant view, and there are a couple of variations on this, the Protestant view is that no one person could ever be the rock. And certainly not Peter. I mean, you've heard me say before, Peter sometimes got it right, but he somehow always messed it up afterward. I, I like to say that Peter is the man who always passed the test and still flunked the course. I mean, it, it was Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we're going to see in, in just a moment. Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he saw Jesus standing up there, shining in resplendent glory, surrounded by Elijah and Moses, he was the one who said, let us build three booths. Three little shelters for you so that we can keep the glory. And the scripture says, for he did not know what he was saying. It was Peter who at the time of the Last Supper said, Jesus, I will go with you to death. I will follow you to Jerusalem. I will suffer martyrdom alongside of you. And Jesus said to him, Peter, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, never me. Of course, we all know by morning he had done it three times. He had deserted Jesus in his hour of need. Is that the rock upon which Christ is going to build his church? Let's be real, Protestants say. The church would have never gotten off the ground if that's the foundation. So the Protestant view is that it can't be Peter the individual, but it was Peter and the apostles themselves. In other words, it was their testimony. And certainly the New Testament does speak about our faith which is built upon the apostles and prophets with Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. Now we do know that Jesus took Peter and He transformed him. And He transformed all the rest as well. Those men who had been cowardly people, those men who had run away in times of trial, they eventually became the great leaders of the church. The very men who deserted Jesus in order to save their own skins, you turn two pages after the resurrection and you suddenly discover they are the very men who are out there willing to die the very thing that they had been willing to deny. They're willing to stand up toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Sanhedrin, the very body that had condemned Jesus to death. So some have argued that that is what Jesus was doing. He was taking these men, transforming them, and at this moment, no, they were not the foundation, but they eventually would. At least their witness would become the foundation. Now, the third view is that it's neither Peter nor the apostles. It's simply Peter's confession. This is an ancient view. It's the view of St. Chrysostom, Gregory of Nyssa, and John of Damascus. It's the idea 
that it wasn't Peter himself, but it's what Peter said that became the foundation of the church. Peter's confession was, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And many commentators said that became the foundation of the church. It was that great confession. That is the starting point for your life as a Christian, and everything else is built upon that. So that's the second view. Here's the third view, that Christ himself is the rock. It's what Peter had to say about Jesus that became the rock. Not merely his confession, but Christ himself. This is a little more problematic. Uh, people say, well, you can, you can read it out of the Greek, but you have to remember that when Jesus spoke to Peter, he wasn't speaking in Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek, but Jesus probably spoke his response in Aramaic. And when you read it in Aramaic, it's not as clear. And yet there is some theological and biblical merit to this idea. We're told that Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone. So what's the right view? I think it's probably a combination of those last three. I don't think it was Peter himself. It may have been Peter and the apostles. It may have been Peter's confession. It may be what Peter had to say about Jesus in particular. But I think it's sort of a combination of those three. It's this great message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior who has come into the world. That is the bedrock upon which our faith is built. That is the foundation of everything we believe. And Jesus said, it is upon this great truth, this rock, that I will ultimately build my church. And he doesn't stop there. He said, I will not only build my church on this great rock, but he goes on to say something else. He said, and the gates of what? Of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, one of the reasons I gave you the background here and told you a little bit about this area of Caesarea Philippi is I said that there was this great cave out of which the waters that formed the Jordan River flowed. It was called what? The Gate of Hades. It's almost as though Jesus, against that background, and when you look at it from this background, it makes altogether new sense. Jesus is saying, yes, Peter, you are right. I, who am I? The world says you're a prophet. The world says you're a great moral exemplar. The world says you're one of those other deities up there in Caesarea Philippi. But I say you are not just one among many, you are the only way. It was Peter saying what Jesus says in John chapter 14. I'm saying that you are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And Jesus is saying that is absolutely true. And I want you to know that all of this paganism, all of this syncretism, all of this false belief, none of that, even though it seems as though it's triumphant now, None of that in all of its glory will last forever and it will not prevail against what I am doing. And it's interesting. The only reason why the vast majority of people go to Caesarea Philippi today, go to Banyas today to see this site, is not because it's a great archaeological site. There are greater ones in antiquity. People go to Caesarea Philippi. Why? Because it was here that Jesus asked that great question. What Jesus said was absolutely true. All of that faded away, and the only reason we go there today is not because it's a center of Caesar worship, not because it's associated with the ancient god Pan, not because it was a site of Baal worship. We go there because Jesus Christ went there. 
the gates of Hades. All of this, he says, will not prevail against the church. Now, this has been somewhat misunderstood, I think. When many people think of that phrase, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, for whatever reason, this picture of the church and of Christians sort of being in a siege mentality. We have this image of the church sort of hunkering down and an unbelieving, pagan, and aggressive culture is coming against us. And Jesus giving us this problem, giving us this promise, hang in there, don't get discouraged, no matter what the world wants to do to you, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Isn't that the picture we have? But that is not what Jesus was talking about here. He was not talking about the church being on the defensive and the world being on the offensive. What are gates used for? To keep people out and to keep you in. Isn't that right? Gates are for defense. But Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. He doesn't say the forces of hell will not prevail against the gates of heaven. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So who's on the defensive and who's on the offensive according to Jesus' picture? Hell's on the defensive. The church is on the offensive. Jesus says, that's right, Peter, what you have said is true, and I tell you the truth, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It is a picture of the church militant. That's the way theologians have sometimes described the church today. It is a picture of the church going on mission, taking the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ out into the world, and there will be opposition, there will be those who will oppose us, but no matter how much they oppose us, we will be victorious because the gospel cannot be stopped. This is what Handel meant in his Messiah when he said, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever. This is what Paul said when he said, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will bow willingly because He is their Lord, some will bow because He is the Lord, but every knee will one day bow. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That's the message that Jesus was proclaiming. What a difference it would make if we Christians would take that to heart. We oftentimes sort of sit in the corner and suck our thumbs and think that the world is just coming against us and we, can't have, we don't have anything to do about it. We just sort of have to grin and bear it. But that is not the picture, my friends. The church is to go on mission. The church is to step out into the world with the gospel, with the good news. And it's true, the body they may kill, as Luther said, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom will be forever. That's what Jesus was saying to Peter. Now that seems odd in light of what follows in verse 20. Because in verse 20, having told this to the disciples... What a word of encouragement, by the way, especially for these men, all of whom, with the exception of John, would face a martyr's death. It's rather odd, then, that in verse 20, Jesus says, now don't tell anybody about it. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was 
the Christ. Why didn't he want anybody to know? This is what biblical scholars commonly refer to as the messianic secret. It's the idea that Jesus kept secret from the crowds his true identity until the last. Well, if you read through John's gospel, not Matthew, but if you read through John, there's an expression that keeps coming up. It's the expression, the hour. The hour, the hour. Jesus sometimes referred to my hour. When he performed his first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, we're told that they ran out of wine at this wedding feast, which was a great disgrace in a first century Jewish wedding celebration because wine was a symbol for joy. The rabbis used to say, where there is no wine, there is no joy. Uh, a great you know, connection between Jews and Anglicans. We believe the same thing about wine. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. But that's what the Jews believed. And so when they ran out of wine, this was a great disgrace because people came from long distances. Most people didn't travel in those days, not like we do. They didn't have automobiles and that sort of thing. So traveling was a luxury, and it was difficult. It was arduous. It's one of the reasons why the journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, especially when she was expecting, was very difficult and arduous. It was a burden. So during wedding feasts, you would travel great distances to get to a place, and when you got there, you stayed there. Uh, think about this, those of you who have daughters and have paid for their weddings. A wedding Jewish feast would sometimes last up to two weeks. And you were expected to provide food and drink for all of those people. And if there was one thing you could not run out of, it was wine. Because as I said, wine symbolized joy. And if you run out of wine, it's symbolic of running out of joy. So you always had a steady supply. Well, these people had traveled a great distance, they were very thirsty, and they drank up all the wine. And Mary comes to Jesus, and she says, they've run out of wine. And what does Jesus say? Well, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, what does that mean? My hour has not yet come. It was Jesus' way of saying, the moment for me to be revealed for who I really am and for what I have come to do has not yet come. It will come, but it has not yet come. And you'll see that that phrase, the hour, is mentioned over and over again in the Gospel of John, and every time it's always with these words attached. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. On one occasion, they took him out to the brow of a hill. They wanted to stone him or throw him off, and we're told he passed through the crowd. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Then you get to the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's about the last week of his life, and we're told a group of Greeks... Gentiles came to the Apostle Philip, namesake of this church, and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip went and told Jesus, and the Gospel says, Jesus replied, My hour has come. That was the messianic secret. Jesus keeping His true identity to Himself. Now the disciples recognize who He is, but the hour for that to be revealed to the world had not yet come, and so He says, Don't tell anybody about it. You ever notice that when Jesus raised somebody from the dead, like Jairus' daughter, he told the girl's parents, don't tell anybody about it. It's interesting. He always told them that, and they went out and told everybody. <laughs> the reason why he didn't want them to know is because people have a tendency to get all fascinated with the miraculous, but they miss the man. They're fascinated with the miracles, but they miss the man, and they miss his message. And that's what Jesus wanted them to understand. It's who he is. The Son of God, 
the Savior of the world that matters. And so he tells the disciples, don't tell anybody about that. Well, is that the way it's supposed to be with us? What I want to suggest to you is that that was then, this is now. At this moment, Jesus said, don't tell anyone about it. But when you get to the end of all the Gospels, what does Jesus say to his disciples? What are Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew's Gospel? The final words that Jesus speaks prior to his ascension to glory with the Father, he says, go ye into all the world and preach the good news. Making disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? If Jesus Christ were to stand before you today and ask you the question, and you have to answer honestly, because he knows what you're thinking anyway, what would you really be able to say to him right now, at this very moment? Could you say you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one? And I know you've come into this world to save us from our sins and more specifically to save me from my sins. If you really believe that with all your heart, then you are a Christian. And if you are a Christian, then you have a responsibility to go out and share that message with the world. And even if all of this hostility and paganism comes against you, you can be confident that the word of the Lord never comes back void. The gates of hell shall never prevail against the church. Hallelujah. That's what this Christian life is all about. It's not just about showing up and going through the motions. It's not just about believing all the right things. It's not just trying to be moral and upright. All of that is a part of it, but it is so much more. It is about knowing Jesus Christ personally. It is about taking up your cross and following hard after Him. It is about proclaiming Him to those all around you that all the world might own Him Lord. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Peter's great confession. We thank you for the spiritual insight that he had on this occasion. We thank you that you handed over to your apostles the keys of the kingdom. This doesn't mean that Peter was going to determine who got in and who got out, but by the preaching of the word, by the preaching of this great confession, People who were bound in sin in nature's night were delivered. They were liberated from their sin and from the fear of death to the new life of grace. You've given us this same key of the gospel. Grant us the grace to go out and proclaim it from the rooftops to everyone we know. And even if the world comes against us, give us the courage to remember that wherever the gospel goes, the gates of hell at Hades cannot withstand it. Give us courage, Lord, in this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.